Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning, Episode 3, The Medical Intensive Care Unit, From Worse to Worser. Throughout the course of our second day in the hospital, Jim underwent a series of tests and scans before he was prepped for a bone marrow biopsy. Though all those other tests were necessary health status indicators, the pathology from the biopsy would inform the doctors as to the exact type of leukemia he had. I didn't know there were so many. The biopsy procedure involved the insertion of a metal straw into the back of Jim's hip bone so they could extract some of his bone marrow. They told us that these rapidly multiplying cancer cells make a person's bones more dense, therefore more difficult to puncture with a metal straw. Our natural assumption was that Jim would be sedated for the procedure because getting pierced in your bones sounds fucking painful. For some reason, this reminds me of Jim's vasectomy. Jim and I knew after our second son was born, a short 18 months after our first, that our capacity for parenthood was maxed. I'm not going to go so far as to say that we were good at man-to-man defense, but we had a fighting chance. If we had ventured into zone defense by bringing in a third baby Barbaro, our spirits would have been crushed and our children would have ended up as feral cretins roaming the streets. The sterilization conversation usually came up in the middle of the night while we were being serenaded by wailing babies. You do it! No, you do it! We would shout over the shrieks of our progeny. Our inability to agree on who was going to get procedured, was a significant speed bump on our road to terminating our procreating abilities. The one thing that worked to my advantage was Jim's thrift. Initially, this compounded the problem because our health insurance didn't cover the procedure for either of us. But, like a message from God, who was probably taking pity on us because we hadn't slept in a year, a quarter-page ad for a free vasectomy appeared in our community paper. Ha! Problem solved, I thought. I eagerly showed the ad to Jim. Well, free vasectomy didn't quite ignite his enthusiasm like it did mine. But I was not going to let this opportunity escape. In the next few weeks, the ad kept appearing, but the doctor's advertising started charging a nominal fee that increased with each week. When it hit $20, I knew my window was closing. We both did our share of investigating to make sure this wasn't a weird science experiment or that the word veterinary wasn't hidden somewhere in the ad. After everything checked out, we made a consultation appointment with the doctor advertising. He told us that they were practicing a non-traditional procedure that involved using a poke hole to get to the vas deferens rather than making an incision. He said many of the men going through the procedure don't need any anesthesia and had much shorter recovery periods than with the traditional method. In fact, he told us, many men go right back to work after this type of vasectomy. I was completely sold. Go ahead, poke my husband in the nuts. Stop the madness. Jim was lukewarm at best, but the kids weren't getting any quieter and the price was right, so he acquiesced. In hindsight, it's like somnolence was the name of a person living in our house driving bad decisions early on in our parenting days. I accompanied Jim to the appointment. There were two men in the waiting room, outfitted in construction gear. The first guy was called back. Twenty minutes later, he walked out, no worse for the wear. The second guy was called back. 
He too walked out twenty minutes later as if nothing happened. It appeared the doctor wasn't exaggerating about the easy recovery. Then it was Jim's turn. I went into the exam room with him. As soon as the doctor touched him in his nether regions, he started flopping around on the table like a fresh-caught fish on a dock. Unlike a fish, we couldn't hit him in the head with a mallet to get him to sit still. We all tried talking him through it to no avail. He just could not let this procedure go through without some kind of sedation. The doctors gave up and pulled out a syringe filled with night-night juice. The drug cocktail was a fast-acting, short-lived sedation that gave me just enough time to make a couple inappropriate jokes at my husband's expense while the doctors did their work. When they were done, Jim snapped too and walked out without any issue. Now we could continue caring for our baby demons with the confidence of people who knew that no new warbles were going to be joining the midnight chorus. Nothing about our current situation had any of the levity of Jim's vasectomy. So imagine our dismay upon learning that this procedure was going to be performed without any sedation. This was not going to go well. Where is the vasectomy doctor and his magic syringe? Jim was a nervous wreck in anticipation. His body was so tensed up, I imagined they were going to need a jackhammer to get through his muscles before they could touch his hip bone. They numbed the external area and gave him an anti-anxiety medication in advance with the hope that he would relax, but that did not work. I felt so unprepared. I tried to play music for him through his phone in a lame attempt to distract him. A fiasco on my part. I couldn't figure out his phone or his streaming service. The music I played when I finally figured it all out didn't provide any distraction or comfort whatsoever. All I could do was hold his hand and talk to him softly while they pierced him in the back. The atmosphere in the room itself was funereal. The metal straw had to cut through the tension in the room before it could even touch Jim's back. The nurse performing the procedure did an amazing job. He got in and out as quickly as possible, extracting what he needed. Though he was nimble and seemingly quick, it still hurt like a mother, and I'm sure to Jim it felt like hours were dragging by. Jim and I let out a collective sigh of relief that could be heard on the other side of the hospital when the nurse was done. Now we had to wait while the folks in the lab analyzed the biopsied blood sample. At the end of this exhausting day, Jim's blood oxygen level started to fall. Around 11 p.m., all manner of healthcare professionals came piling into his room. Jim and I were still trying to digest the fact that he had cancer. Less than 24 hours after this preliminary diagnosis, an even bigger health emergency was presenting. Every single person was moving quickly, yet calmly. Their body language was sending mixed messages so I couldn't gauge the severity of Jim's condition. I kept saying, his blood oxygen level was just at 100%. It's only down slightly. What's going on? He looks fine. He's not acting any different. Why do we have to go to the ICU? I was becoming increasingly agitated because they were hurting Jim and I couldn't understand what was going on. He was already feeling lousy, tired, and scared. They were poking and prodding him as more people came in with additional equipment. There was nothing I could do but watch all the activity. The physician's assistant was doing a poor job of explaining why all the interventions were required and he started to lose patience with my inability to decipher what I perceived as his antiseptic tiptoeing around the truth. It seemed like there were gaps in the information being conveyed, like everyone was afraid of telling me just how serious all this was. I finally said, I can't help but feel that there is something you aren't telling me. 
Why is all this happening? Why are we going to the ICU? The PA gave up and grabbed his resident to use as a human shield. All she did was stare at me with a disturbing frozen smile while the regular PA ditched out. Fuck you very much. To this day, I would give anything to punch him in his face as hard as I could and slap that look off the resident's mug so she would never smile that vacant smile at anyone ever again. So, what exactly was happening to Jim? Here are the medical notes from that morning. Patient found to have a large anterior mediastinal mass with a white blood cell count of 80. 41% miscellaneous cells, most likely blasts, highly concerning for a high-grade lymphoma. The CT scan also showed bilateral pleural effusions and a pericardial effusion, meeting tamponade physiology. This is a critically ill patient with the potential to decompensate quickly due to tumor lysis syndrome, tamponade physiology, and acute hypoxic respiratory failure. Potential to decompensate quickly was realized that night. Seeing as though crises don't typically afford one the opportunity to Google search medical terms, the following explanation would have been much more useful to me. Jennifer, your husband is in danger of going into heart failure because the cancer cells are multiplying so quickly his blood is turning into sludge. That I would have understood. But it was after hours, so our dedicated team wasn't there. I had the night shift, who all seemed to be crabby, and they either didn't think it was important for me to understand what was happening, or were afraid to tell me just how critical Jim was. It turns out that this crabby group of people was the rapid response team. They swarm in when a patient is in critical condition. No one told me that's who they were. I found out from reading Jim's medical records. During the flurry of activity, they fashioned Jim with a BiPAP machine that was like a clear Darth Vader helmet. You could see Jim's face, but you couldn't hear him very well. His voice was dull and echoey inside the helmet, competing with the loud rushing sound of oxygen being pumped in. Around 2 a.m., they wheeled him to the medical intensive care unit on the other side of the hospital. The nurses instructed me to remove all of our things from the room in the cancer center. I had to take our stuff back to my car like a wandering nomad in the middle of the night. Then I had to find my way through the labyrinthine hospital corridors to where Jim was being held in intensive care. Once there, I sat next to him, watching all the monitors as intensely as one would watch a psychological thriller. Though it was late, sleep was elusive because I was so wired from the freneticism of the last 48 hours. To help you better understand my state of mind during this medical pandemonium, I'm going to share a few of my previous hospital experiences. Experiences that have rendered me intensely afraid of being a patient in a hospital, especially a teaching hospital. It doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the education necessary to train the future generations of doctors and nurses. I'm sure I've benefited from the medical science learned in these teaching settings, and for that I'm grateful. It's very easy for me to be appreciative when I'm not in the hospital. But if it's me or my loved ones, appreciation quickly gets crowded out by fear and hate. I suppose it goes back to the birth of Gianni. Early in the morning, the day after he was born, bruising appeared on his abdomen, and one of his testicles looked like a purple globe grape. I hadn't seen the bruising yet because we were still resting. Less than 24 hours prior, I had given birth, without pain medication, to an almost 10-pound baby, and no, I was not anti-pain meds. The little guy was in a hurry to come out, 
so there wasn't enough time for the anesthesia people to numb me up before pushing a bowling ball out of my vagina. It's no exaggeration on my part to say that I resembled the many women TV shows and comedians have satirized for years because I literally shrieked, This is a hospital! There's got to be something you can give me! When the nurse examined Gianni, she found the bruising and freaked out. An appropriate reaction, I'd say. She called another nurse in for a second set of professional eyes on the situation. That person immediately assumed an accusatory posture with Jim. We didn't get what they were implying because it never occurred to us that child abuse was a possibility. Looking back, I'm sadly aware that they'd seen terrible things. And yet, at the risk of sounding jaded, I also figure their ego defenses told them that if Jim was to blame, they weren't. The nurses summoned the resident to look at Gianni. After a brief examination, she looked me straight in the eyes and said they would have to remove his testicle because it hadn't dropped properly and it was too late to save it. I was dumbfounded. Though I was unable to speak, the look of horror on my face communicated plenty. The nurse standing behind her decided to add to the excitement by chiming in with, You're just upset because of postpartum hormones. It's a good thing she was out of my reach. My fist wanted to give her an up-close look at the effects of postpartum hormones. They ran a bunch of tests on Gianni, including x-rays and ultrasounds. My pediatrician was out of town, so I didn't have anyone I could trust to help us navigate this insanity. That evening, the chief resident marched into my room, noticeably pissed. He was a tall man who walked with an air of authority. I was sitting in an easy chair nursing Gianni when he started asking me questions in a brusque, staccato manner. He asked me if the baby was eating okay. I replied, yes. Is your baby pooping? Yes. Is he sleeping? Yes. Does your baby seem okay to you? Yes. He then stood bolt upright, looked at the wall above my head, and announced in an angry tone to what seemed to be an imaginary audience, there is nothing wrong with this baby. Then he turned heel and marched out. Thank God for that guy. That's the last I heard of anyone cutting off my son's testicle. That alone should have been enough to turn me off to teaching hospitals. But there were other incidents that friends and I experienced over the course of the years. My subconscious took notes and organized them in the emergency files of my mind. I noticed, for example, that when I had minor procedures, the doctors wouldn't tell me straight up that a resident was performing them. I found this out through a physician friend. The lack of transparency is pretty dodgy and certainly does not engender trust. Another frightening situation happened to the wonderful minister who officiated at our kids' baptisms. Sadly, she became sick with some weird autoimmune disease. When I went to visit her in the hospital one day, she was very upset. A doctor had taken her in for an unscheduled surgery a few nights prior. Myriad complications cascaded after this late-night procedure. She thought being operated on at night was suspect and warned me very seriously from her hospital bed. Don't ever let anyone operate on you in the middle of the night. She felt like she had been experimented on. All this information over time got tucked away in my brain to be recalled in the early days of Jim's care. When all those people showed up in Jim's room in the middle of the night the second day we were in the hospital, I think it's understandable why I just about lost my shit and the lack of clear communication was an extra straw to many. Medical ICU continued. 
We woke the next morning to an atmosphere imbued with high energy. The cancer center is much more chill by comparison. The ICU rooms were smaller with many more patients in close proximity. Not as bad as the ER. I mean, shit, nothing is as bad as that ER. But there was definitely a greater sense of urgency in the air. There were as many flashing lights as an airport, and all kinds of beeps and buzzes could be heard up and down the hallways. I really liked the director of the department. He was warm and genuinely kind. We actually got to see him fairly regularly. The consistency was comforting. Despite Jim's relocation under cover of darkness, the parade of healthcare professionals had no trouble finding him. This is when I found out that our dedicated team wasn't our team anymore for two reasons. First, we had moved to the other side of the hospital. Though Jim was a cancer patient, he was no longer considered a patient of the cancer center. Essentially, we had entered Walmart in the lawn and garden section, and in the middle of the night, they moved us to the grocery section. Much like Walmart, if you ask someone in one department about a product from another department, you might as well have asked them about the cost of real estate in the city of Atlantis. Second, Jim had entered the hospital in the third week of a three-week rotation. That meant all the doctors and residents we met during our initial team orientation were in the process of tapping out. The attending from our first team did end up visiting us, but we were never sure when she was going to show up. If I was in the bathroom or the cafeteria, I missed my chance to talk to her. That seemed to be a frequent occurrence. Waiting for the doctors was a common theme throughout our entire hospital experience. My corporate brain was accustomed to strict schedules that were filled with meetings taking place at times mutually agreed upon by all parties. That's not how it worked here. Jim was tethered to multiple monitors and machines. There were tubes, cords, and wires all over the place. Jim was uncomfortable, and the whole scene was disconcerting. He looked like a grounded parade balloon. Just when I thought they couldn't possibly attach anything else, two cancer center nurses came in to insert a peripherally inserted central catheter, or PICC line for short, into his arm. This would be the access point by which the chemo and other medicines would be administered directly into Jim's veins. A PICC line avoids having to poke a patient repeatedly. The lines looked like funky body decorations that dangled from Jim's arm when not in use. While they were inserting the line, one of the nurses told me about the importance of properly sterilizing the ends. He was very specific when he looked me dead in the eyes and said, These lines need to be sterilized with an alcohol wipe for 20 seconds before and after use. Do not let anyone skip this step. Jim could get an infection straight in his system from this line if it isn't sterilized properly. I got the message loud and clear. Turns out, non-cancer center nurses did not get that memo. I argued with more nurses in the ICU about the sterilization process than you could want to imagine. I had to make them call the cancer center for verification and put a note in Jim's chart. Yet the attention to sterilization remained inconsistent until we got back to the cancer center. His hair was getting tangled up in all the hospital tethers. Hair loss was not in Jim's genes, so shortly after he turned 50, he started to grow it out into one fantastically long, lush head of hair. I'm not sure what inspired him to grow it, but I'm glad he did. Maybe it was a middle-aged man's testament to virility? A fuck you to aging? I don't know, but the long hair added quite nicely to his Samson-like masculine aura.
Acting as an unintentional Delilah, I summoned our trusted family hair manager, Jill. She apparated before our eyes with a bag of salon accoutrement. Stylists are a special breed. They'd rather be attacked by killer bees than let their clients walk around looking busted. The boys had joined us in the room. Together we discussed what style Jim should go with. We all settled on a Keanu Reeves a la John Wick. When Jill was finished, Jim's hair fell satisfyingly past his ears, but it was shaped in a way that helped keep it from getting tangled in medical equipment. While in the hospital, Jim started growing his facial hair. Pre-cancer, I never liked Jim with a beard because it was like kissing a wire brush. He only shaved on my account. Now he was going full guns with beard and mustache. He had lost control over so many parts of his life, I certainly wasn't going to protest his defiant middle finger to forces beyond his control. As the disease and subsequent treatments progressed, I watched my big, strong, confident husband lose physical attributes of his male identity one by one. His connected situation rendered him unable to shower, so the nurses gave me packages of warm wet naps and no-rinse shampoo shower caps designed specifically for this purpose. The modern-day sponge bath, helping him with his ablutions in this weird setting was simultaneously sad and tender. Over the next couple days, the critical nature of Jim's health status gradually de-escalated. He was back to his good nature, chatting with the nurses and walking laps around the hospital floor. Though Jim seemed to be feeling better, we were still in limbo, waiting for the results of the tests that would reveal the exact category of his disease. Diagnosis Late in the afternoon, on the fourth day of our hospital stay, we met Jim's oncologist. Finally, a lighthouse in the storm. Dr. X came into Jim's room with one other person, rather than the crowd we'd come to expect. She was unhurried in her explanation of Jim's leukemia, taking great care to make sure we understood his cancer. She explained that after thorough testing, they were able to determine that Jim had something called T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or T-cell ALL. That's T as in Tom. She actually drew a picture of it to help us visualize the disease. We learned that leukemia is not as prevalent as other cancers such as breast and lung. For example, in the United States, roughly 60,000 new cases of leukemia are diagnosed a year compared to 280,000 new cases of breast cancer and 250,000 new cases of lung cancer. The types of leukemia are grouped into four categories, acute myeloid leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. About 9.5% of leukemias fall into the ALL category. Annually in the United States, 40% of ALL diagnoses are in adults, and 25% of the adult ALL diagnoses are T-cell. That translates into roughly a mere 600 new adult T-cell ALL diagnoses in the U.S. each year. In other words, Jim won Hell's Lottery. Dr. X told us that Jim's disease was progressing rapidly. She said that the steroid he'd been given was a temporary fix and that chemotherapy was the treatment necessary to give us a shot at driving the cancer into remission. After telling us what the chemotherapy entailed, she said it was her recommendation that Jim begin treatments right away. Sadly, there weren't any other treatment options. Well, I mean, there was the option of doing nothing, but that most certainly meant death in the near term. Even if we wanted a second opinion, 
This aggressive, rapidly moving disease didn't allow for the mind space one would prefer when faced with a life-and-death decision. We had to place all our trust in Dr. X. There was nothing Jim and I knew that could be of any use in this situation. We had nowhere else to turn. She was the one, our team's coach. Dr. X further explained that if they could get Jim's cancer in remission, a bone marrow transplant would be their recommended course of action to prevent the mutated cells from coming back. Essentially, they had to kill all the blood cells, good and bad, before they could attempt to give Jim a cellular rebirth. If we agreed, she would start him on one chemotherapy regimen that evening. They would proceed with his treatments based on how Jim's body responded to the therapy. In order to start the treatment plan, they needed Jim's consent. We were terrified and in shock. We don't know how long Jim would have lived if he'd decided to forego treatment, but judging from his situation in the ICU, I don't think it would have been very long. What exactly is T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia? Here's my Dick and Jane explanation. Different types of blood cells are made in your bone marrow. One type is a white blood cell called a T-cell. These buggers fight off infection. This particular disease affects those infection fighters. But these wily cancer cells are clever survivors, disguising themselves so that other infection-fighting cells don't recognize the cancerous T-cells for the imposters they are. That's pretty bad. It's like if Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, and all the other superheroes in the Justice League lost their superpowers and turned to a life of crime, while maintaining their superhero appearances. The police would be all like, Hey, check out Superman helping that old lady into the bank. What a great dude. Meanwhile, Superman is actually going into the bank to steal from the old lady and everyone else so he can feed his meth habit. Then, the fallen superheroes start multiplying rapidly. But the replicants are all underdeveloped mutants that have no infection-fighting abilities. Their only superpower is exponential reproduction. The mutated superheroes are all spazzy, like 16-year-olds going to a party at a rich kid's house whose parents are away. As they gather at the party, they collect in and around the pool. They continue to multiply, crowding out everything in the yard. The landscaping gets trampled, and the shed with all the yard tools is crushed. Eventually, there are so many of them that they start displacing all the water in the pool. In the body... This pool party of mutated T-cells took place in Jim's thymus, an important central lymph node, creating a mass in his mediastinum. The mediastinum is the area of the chest that separates the lungs. It's surrounded by the breastbone in front, the spine in back, and the lungs on each side. It contains the heart, aorta, esophagus, thymus, trachea, lymph nodes, and nerves. Essentially, most of the important for living body parts. It's a terrible place for a rave. To temporarily corral these superhero-turned-teenage-criminal ravers, the emergency responders had to hit them with a steroid stun gun. This would keep them at bay until the SWAT team arrived with a Ghostbuster proton pack filled with chemotherapy, cancer's kryptonite. Consent. The tiny window we had to make a decision further elevated our stress levels. There was no time to sleep on it, Jim had already hit a critical point in the progression of the disease. The partygoers would be up again soon, emboldened in their effort to wreak havoc. Giving consent is as much a no as it is a yes. No, I don't want to die. Yes, you can poison me. Cancer patients are forced into an appalling double bind. 
Consent to treatment is legalese for I willingly accept an invitation to be brutally tortured for an indefinite amount of time with the hope that one day I will get to live cancer-free. I vaguely remember Dr. X talking about the risks and side effects that might accompany treatment, but that seemed a mere footnote in my mind compared to the how do we make this go away part of the discussion. Though Dr. X took her time explaining the disease to us, she didn't know anything about our values and life priorities. How could she, or any other person for that matter, who just met us? In 30 minutes, 20 of which were dedicated to a didactic lesson on leukemia, how could anyone learn about your character, morals, goals, and aspirations? How could you know if we were religious or nihilists, if we preferred quality of life over quantity? How could you know what someone's humanistic priorities are outside of live or die? Absent that knowledge, how does any doctor know what level of emphasis to place on the risks and side effects part of the discussion, if it should be the denominator or the numerator in the decision-making calculus? I have the impression that doctors present information to patients using a combination of science and professional judgment. When you think about it, that's an exceptionally powerful yet precarious position to be in. Inclusion education teaches us that when we don't have time to think something through, unconscious bias grabs the steering wheel of our judgment. We'd all like to think that highly educated medical minds are able to embrace mindfulness as they process the information they have to deliver to a patient. But healthcare professionals are being stretched to perform increasingly more tasks in shorter amounts of time. These conditions are both antithetical and antagonistic to mindfulness. When Giacomo was one year old, we discovered that he had high levels of lead in his blood. It was June of 1999, and Jim was deeply engaged in what became an every-other-year event, painting our house. The troubling news of Giacomo's out-of-whack blood chemistry surfaced in the midst of Jim's fervor. At the young age of 35, Jim approached his inaugural house painting task with vim and vigor. He set his sights on tackling the whole Megillah by himself, a two-story, 2,000-square-foot home with three different porches. This was a formidable, yet doable job for one young man. This particular summer, I was profoundly annoyed because it was hotter than hell and I was four months pregnant with Gianni. Four months pregnant, you say? What's the big deal? My pregnancy with Gianni was much different than my first. With Giacomo, I didn't show until late in the second trimester. And then I had a cute little basketball of a pregnant belly. Gianni was a completely different story. I looked and felt like I was 14 months pregnant from the point of conception. Seriously, I was the size of a whale. I actually felt the urge to emit whale sounds every time I had to get up from a chair. We didn't have central air or any air conditioning units. In our early life together, Jim's fears around money bordered on the phobic. He wouldn't buy an air conditioner for our room and told me to sit in front of a fan. This was one of those times where I seriously questioned my choice of spouse. One day, Giacomo toddled out onto the porch and bit the wood railing. As I was swiping the chunk of porch out of his mouth, I thought, Huh, I wonder if there's lead in this paint. I went out back and called up to Jim, who was on the ladder, shirtless and in cut-off shorts, the outfit he wore when he did most of his summertime construction projects. Hey, hun, is there lead in this paint? To which he replied while scraping away without any tarps, masks, or appropriate health and safety equipment. Probably. The house was built in 1920. 
I think they stopped using lead in 1945. Crap. I chiseled a paint chip from the porch and sent it to the county health department. The county workers called me two days after I mailed the sample in. They urged me to take Giacomo for a blood test as soon as possible. Sure enough, he had a high blood lead level. It wasn't high enough for him to be chelated, but it definitely clanged the alarm bell at the health department. So much so that government officials swarmed our home like bees. I'm not making this up when I tell you that once we got everything under control, we became the local spokesfamily for childhood lead testing. About a month before that fresh hell broke loose, I had taken Giacomo for his one-year well-child checkup. New York State regulations dictated that babies were to be tested for lead at this milestone exam. Our pediatrician neglected to do so. We are white, middle-class, and college-educated, perhaps not the typical family impacted by lead poisoning. I've often wondered if the doctor's unconscious bias influenced his judgment when he decided not to test Giacomo for lead. As I reflect on everything that happened, I can't help but ponder the bigger implications of unconscious bias in healthcare. Were there biases that led to an emphasis on beating the cancer over the pain and suffering we'd have to endure as a result of the treatment? Was Jim's relative youth a factor? Did the doctors presume that well-educated middle-class people would make the same choices that they themselves would make? All along our journey down the cancer path, the risks and side effects discussion was minimized compared to the heft given to the diagnosis and treatments. In hindsight, I think there should have been an additional consent form that read something like this. Do you consent to almost dying anyway because chemo poisons the fuck out of your whole body? Feeling sick all the time, like teenage hangover with a terrible flu sick. Not being able to eat. Not being able to defecate, punctuated by unexpected bouts of diarrhea. Not being able to do many of the things you like to do, like play music, have sex with your wife, paint, run, hike, or work. Not being able to do the things you don't like to do, like clean the kitchen, shop, or mow the lawn. I wonder how many people would sign this consent form. Would it really be such a bad thing if more people opted out? I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying especially because each cancer has its own complicated biochemistry and each body is different. But it's an important philosophical discussion that the larger community may be avoiding. Perhaps doctors don't paint the full picture because they are driven by a moral imperative to do no harm. But do no harm itself is subjective. As far as I can tell, the only other times people suffer the type of physical pain, anguish, and psychological torment that comes with cancer treatments are prison camps and countries where entire populations of people are mercilessly persecuted. The difference is that prisoners and the oppressed don't volunteer for torture, and rarely are they promised that it's being done for their own good. Another complicating factor in this discussion is that a patient can't really know what it's going to be like until they're fully in it. How can you give thoughtful consent to a bunch of maybes? We were under an enormous amount of pressure trying to make an informed decision while dealing with so many unknowns. I think that's why we were only able to focus on the main live or die question. What else do you do when your circle of life has turned into a roulette wheel? Jim put all his money down on live and signed the consent form. And on the fifth day. On the fifth day of Jim's hospitalization, he remained tethered to a bunch of tubes and wires in the ICU that drastically inhibited his movements. He looked like a weird science experiment. In the wake of our preliminary whirlwind, Jim was thinking very seriously about his mortality. When my sister Diane arrived to check in on us, 
Jim told her he wanted to name her as his second health care proxy. This pronouncement opened up a conversation about painful, preparatory, end-of-life considerations. We were very hopeful, but Jim and I both are practical people. He wanted to make sure certain things were going to be taken care of in case this didn't go the way we all wanted it to. It was a very emotional conversation. The reality of Jim's disease was sinking in. It was hard for all of us to talk about the possibility that he might not beat it. Jim met my sister shortly after we met back in 1990. We were all in our 20s. In a way, we all grew up together. As the three of us were talking, crying, and sharing a very private and intimate moment, the hospital custodian came in. He took to his job with volume and flourish, as if every task required thespian zeal. I was impressed by the magician-like flair he used to open a new trash bag. I was less impressed by the fact that his excessive clanging and clattering was interrupting our conversation. As we lowered our voices and huddled closer for privacy, he became louder and more animated. Finally, when he swept underneath my feet, I sat back with a, Okay then, dude, what the fuck do you want? Look on my face. Seizing his big break, he happily inserted himself in our conversation. Excuse me, do you all mind if I pray for you? Stunned, my sister and I just stared at him. Emotionally exhausted, Jim uttered, Sure. My husband didn't affiliate with any particular faith. For the most part, he thought organized religions were disingenuous. The cancer diagnosis did not alter his perspective. Jim found his peace and a connection to a higher power when he was out in nature. That's what gave him comfort and confidence. He lived his life honestly and simply. He didn't entertain a notion that he needed his relationship with God to be sanctioned by any particular person hawking their religion. The custodian was a tall man. He stood towering over the foot of Jim's bed, looking like he wasn't going to take no for an answer. I could see Jim's thought process floating in his eyes like clouds. He decided to interpret the intrusion as an act of kindness and allowed the man to carry on with his performance. Having spent years feeling the heat of my husband's body language when he didn't want me to get into it with anyone, think waiters, salespeople, I read Jim's vibe and allowed for the imposition. Besides, I don't think either of us could withstand conflict while in our emotionally vulnerable state. I fear it was a calculated manipulation on the part of this uninvited pseudo-cleric. Now that he had the floor, the custodian's message was delivered more like a lecture than a prayer. There was no raising of hands or a bowing of heads. He yammered on about miraculous healings and told Jim that if he asked God for forgiveness and prayed hard, he'd get better. Ah, the marvelous Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, more commonly known as HIPAA, and its promises that you have a right to privacy in your medical care. My suspicions that HIPAA is a charade meant to satisfy bureaucrats rather than actually protect patient privacy were confirmed by custodians for Christ. Most of the time, HIPAA is just a bureaucratic nuisance. For example, I can't get clarity on my son's doctor bill, which I'm responsible for paying, without my son's signature on a form. Which form? I'm not sure. I print them off as instructed by both the insurance company and the doctor's office. I spend a week hunting down my son for his signature and turn it in only to be told that it isn't the right form. I repeat this ridiculousness several times until the office finally accepts a form. 
I picture a far-side cartoon drawing of office administrators huddled around a phone telling me to go find a different form, then putting themselves on mute so they can laugh their asses off while I react. But this patient privacy regulation somehow does not cover a doctor yelling a life-altering cancer diagnosis to my husband in a hospital hallway that's as busy as Penn Station at rush hour for everyone in a one-mile radius to hear, which in this case was about a thousand people, or a custodian interrupting a personal end-of-life conversation to proselytize. After the three-minute sermon about miracles and forgiveness ended, we proceeded with a hushed and muted version of our conversation. Our privacy having been invaded, we now felt like we were being listened to and judged. I told one of the nurses what happened. She responded sheepishly with, He shouldn't be doing that. Oh, gee, you think? I was furious. Jim, on the other hand, was in a different frame of mind. He was way past his capacity to handle any more attention. During the days leading up to this incident, the custodian had been affable and pleasant, personality traits Jim appreciated like a cool glass of water on a hot day. Though Jim wasn't about to ask for forgiveness, he was definitely ready to dispense it liberally. My job as his wife was to support a tranquil environment as best I could. It would have been a dereliction of duty if I'd made a scene with our crusading custodian. Violated. In the wake of Jim's passing, I've come to realize that a large part of my trauma stems from the fact that we were deeply violated not by any one person, but by the whole process. The entire cancer experience, from start to finish, managed to violate our family physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. What actually happens to your mind when you consent to torture? This trespass hasn't been acknowledged in a meaningful way, nor do I expect will it ever be, because the cancer industry is normalized by our culture. Cancer therapies are a series of acts of violence. Cognitively, you consent because it's the only option that might give you a shot at staying alive. But choosing to pursue treatment means you acquiesce to brutal assaults until one day you either reach remission, cure, or death. And cure is not a path to the self you knew minutes before your diagnosis. The cancer survivor is permanently altered mentally and physically. Though your intellect follows what the doctors are saying and sort of understands the logic of the options, the rest of your body and mind aren't so sure about what's in the offing. Consent is only granted by your higher-order executive function, leaving the rest of your psyche to grapple with the fallout. That's why coping with the violence is so difficult and confusing. What exacerbates the trauma is the silence around its perpetration. No one expresses chest-thumping outrage There isn't even a fist pump to righteous indignation. People move around the cancer center offering limp, I know this is a lot, and I'm so sorry you're going through this. The sentiments don't even come close to matching the egregiousness of cancer treatments. Modern medicine relies on a few therapies for cancer treatment. There is a growing body of research into new methods like immunotherapies, but for now, The aggressive poisoning of your body with chemotherapy and radiation, often accompanied by butchering surgery, remain the preferred, dare I say lucrative, treatment options. As a result, the brutality is normalized by our medical community and accepted by our society. With Jim's consent in hand, the oncologist's goal was to keep Jim's body alive. Between treatments, the rest of the team was laser-focused on managing the physical fallout from the aggressive therapies. However, 
The team turned a blind eye to the mental and emotional anguish suffered by Jim and his family. More on this later. It seemed the doctors and nurses in the cancer center had developed their own emotional buffers in order to cope with walking the tightrope over Death Canyon every day. I certainly don't begrudge them their coping skills. They needed to be able to focus their medical minds on solving the problems of the diseases their patients endured. I can't even imagine what it's like to experience death as a regular part of one's job. If they didn't have some way of coping, they'd never be able to function. But I couldn't help but feel that the disconnect between the torrent of emotions we were feeling and the healthcare team's clinical approach to Jim's care unintentionally became a form of gaslighting, as if everything was normal. When we walked into the hospital, Jim had to surrender his privacy, his dignity, and his personhood in exchange for an army that would fight his disease. A psychological shift took place in him almost immediately upon diagnosis. He quickly developed his own emotional buffer in order to participate in the war. This must be how he was able to convince himself to acquiesce to the treatment while grappling with end-of-life considerations. My normally feisty husband adopted a demure and compliant demeanor. Cancer has a sinister way of humbling the mighty. Jim always used to say, there are worse things than death. Usually, he'd make this statement after we watched a particularly disturbing news report or a documentary about World War II. In the following months, he lived the personification of that sentiment. note. I imagine it may be jarring to hear me talk about punching people. Putting words to my sadness, shame, and yes, my rage, is helping me process my grief. I'm afraid if I don't verbalize my feelings, they'll get buried deep inside, eventually resulting in unhealthy behaviors. This is all to say, please don't worry. Sharing my fantasies about punching people is the very thing that's preventing me from actually doing it. You're listening to Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning. If you're enjoying our story, please subscribe to the podcast from your favorite streaming service. To learn more, visit my website at www.prometheanprojectamr.com. There you'll find a donate button. Funds go to support the groundbreaking research of the Harans Lab at Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, a lab dedicated to researching T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. A special thank you to my friend Fran for his voiceover and my friend Mike Kedley for the musical arrangements. Promethean Project was written, performed, and produced by Jennifer Sanfilippo. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Episode 4. I take a break from our story for an interview with Dr. Harans.